Hello, this is Graham Plaster, CEO of the Intelligence Community, Inc., and the theintelligencecommunity.com with uh, Chris O'Keefe. And I'm really excited to talk to Chris. He's another innovator in the defense innovation space. And uh, Chris, I was wondering if you could give us a quick introduction uh, about your background and what you're doing right now. Yeah, sure, Graham. Um, I'm a former Naval Intelligence Officer. I also spent a couple of years working in South Sudan and East Africa doing government, uh, doing uh, development work. And then I also have started a couple of small startups, ranging from real estate to software and consulting. And I'm currently the chief operating officer of a company out of Half Moon Bay, California, called uh, Future Partners. We are an innovation software and services company. We do mostly work in the, actually almost exclusively work in the corporate and nonprofit small business worlds. Um, and yeah, from there, we work with clients, helping them solve really hard problems around the world. It's really interesting work. And then in my spare time, I do a couple things. I uh, am the editor of a publication called The Navalist on economic and naval, strat economic naval geopolitical strategy, and I put out a new weekly newsletter called Six Bells, which is uh, my musings and on articles and other resources around economic and Navy spaces and also random stuff on intelligence and uh, national security issues. So, I mean, obviously that's Wavetops, and you have a lot of uh, experience, you know, very broad experience and very deep in a lot of areas. Um, is there, like, one thing that you're working on right now that you think is really interesting that you'd like to share with people? Uh, yeah, I think from regards to a, a, a federal perspective, I've joined forces with a couple of colleagues, um, and we are in the process of growing a group called the Federal Innovators Network, where we – it's informal, um, and we bring together innovators across the federal space. It's part support group, part resource group, um, part networking, and we host events and dinner series um, to – bring people together, share best practices, and help spread good ideas and good people throughout the federal space. Um, it's a – we've been doing this for about three years, three or four years informally. Um, our members come from across the government. We hosted a all-day event yesterday on design thinking in the federal government and building metrics. We co-hosted that with uh, University of uh, Virginia Darden, um, their business school, and one of their professors, and we're doing next week or next month. I'm hosting a training, uh, free training for people across the government. Uh, location to be determined, but it'll be as many people as we can fit on the problem-solving methodology that my company works on, called Thinking Wrong, which is focused on radical disruption of the status quo as opposed to incremental improvement in an organization. And we're doing other fun things like talks on funding, talks on resources. In August, we're going to host an event uh, called Wine and Welding with one of our colleagues who do an introduction to welding, have some dinner, and do some interesting machine stuff. They've got a full-on maker space. We're going to have some fun there. So it's an eclectic group of people, really interesting, a lot of fun. I also host a dinner series on artificial intelligence, which is kind of fun. Um, I got into – I was interested in how AI was being adopted across uh, the country in the business world in the federal space and DOD. And I realized that informally there weren't a lot of ways to cut across congressional staffers, business, government. So I started hosting dinners um, where you come together and formally chat, share resources. It was a lot of fun. So that's a couple of projects I'm working on recently that are, I find to be 
really enjoyable, gets to meet a lot of interesting people, and uh, I always learn a whole lot. There's a lot of really smart people out there, and it's great to be able to, to learn from them in a collaborative environment. So you mentioned design thinking. Uh, what are some of your experiences with uh, using design thinking in the federal space or for the military? Uh, some lessons learned on, on how well that works or maybe some challenges. Um, I've learned a lot of lessons. I've actually found a whole lot of success on design and using design thinking in the military as well. Um, actually joined Future Partners because it was an opportunity to grow um, a basically beyond design thinking mentality in the federal government. Um, I think design thinking captures what successful business leaders do intuitively, um, or at least the successful ones. Um, and, you know, any sort of innovation involves creating some sort of, you know, improved value for those you serve. And because government organizations are really complex, I mean, they're just, you know, very complex assortment of individual actors and how those people intersect, you know, they're, it's a super complex system. I think that design thinking allows you to gain alignment in a way that improves the outcome of, sol of solutions significantly. Basically, people arguing at the solution level will always compromise, and the result of any sort of group collaboration around a challenge will usually be suboptimal. So by introducing a process that gets you back to discussing the assumptions versus just discussing solution sets, it allows you to then you're not debating the solution itself. You're just debating the, the criteria. And ultimately, then you decide whether the solution is fitting those criteria. So it's a very helpful thing. And I think it allows you to sort of democratize the innovation process, but also gives you real actionable outcomes. Um, there's a lot of good case studies out there where uh, design thinking has been used effectively in business. And it's a growing number in the government space as well. Um, probably the most effective business case out there is a, a new Forrester report. It just came out on uh, IBM Design Thinking, 48-page report. Very interesting, a lot of useful stuff in that report. But um, something that I had my own experience is with a team of junior officers at the Department of the Navy's uh, personnel office and with the, with the uh, then Chief of Naval Personnel, now the Vice Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral Bill Moran. We, uh, I, um, I and my colleagues, we hosted a two-day uh, symposium on performance evaluation in the Navy with the premise of how might um, we build a performance evaluation system that Apple would like to copy. And we led teams of junior officers plus outside advisors plus, you know, industry experts in a series of exercises and workshops that ultimately led to a report that provided a robust set of recommendations for how to improve uh, performance evaluation from the junior officer perspective. And those recommendations were taken, adopted by the Navy in piecemeal and have been used then to um, improve the fitness report process in a prototype form. And now they're looking to roll those improvements across the fit rep process across the Navy. So it was a small thing, but it was pretty effective. It was all crowdsourced, grassroots. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty cool. So that's one example of how I saw it in the federal space, but also the report's a useful thing of how um, IBM successfully used it to transform uh, somebody, you know, basically how they do business. Yeah, that's great. That sounds like a great success story. And uh, yeah, I'm curious to know, maybe it's a further discussion outside of, you know, what we can do in this podcast, but curious to know, like, how to integrate design thinking methodologies into DevOps uh, as we try to put in the same 
in the same crowdsourcing space, you know, the operators with the out-of-the-box thinkers. Uh, not to say that they can't be the same person, but, um, you know, having productive conversations uh, that are uh, unstructured and then structured um, that, that take us towards solutions rather than just kind of running around in circles. Um, and also yeah, I think uh, that are really practical. Yeah, of course. Um, I mean, the, the IBM came up with a ratio of one one designer per eight people on their team. They came up with that with a lot of work. But I think the point being is that facilitated conversations and, and conversations which apply radical structure generate really actionable output. Um, unstructured discussion across diverse stakeholders, like I said before, it's inherently sub-optimized because the loudest person in the room dominates, the, the, the most senior person in the room dominates. So we talk about integrating into DevOps by giving a structured framework into which have to have solution generation and synthesis conversations. Uh, it's, a re it's a really easy way to, to dramatically improve output. Um, something along the lines of, I think I was, I just finished reading this IBM report, so it's fresh in my mind. They found that the teams that they did a, they did a AB test of teams using design methodologies versus not. And the teams that were using design methodologies were 80% more aligned than non aligned teams. And there's a bunch of good business research that tells you when you have aligned teams, like, you know, output goes, you know, up speed go, you know, speed increases time, you know, throughput increases all these, you know, great MBA metrics. Um, uh, are useful there that and so therefore design thinking allowed that to happen um so i mean so with regards to devops perspective um it allows you quick ways to integrate customer feedback into um or you know client or user feedback right into the development cycle if you're using agile process you can break it up so that you're you know focusing on air on epics and chapters um in, in pretty structured ways, it, it, it nests nicely with the, with the agile development methodology, and it just gives you a great way to integrate, you know, basically full stack from user all the way to dev uh, and everything in between, in a way the structure captures actionable output and you know minimum and and uh, kind of maximizes contributions of the team. Does that make sense? Yeah, of course. Yeah, when I think about design thinking, I think of it as a methodology, and when I think about the strength of it, I think about the methodology with the people, right? So you go back to Aristotle's politics and talk about how democracy is the sum of its people. And if you have a certain type of people making it democracy, it's not going to be the same as another group of people of a different type in a democracy. And the same is true with design thinking. So you could have a, a group of certain type of people using a, the methodology and then it would produce very different results for a different group of people. So, uh, I think it's a strong methodology, and my experience working with design thinking has been both good and bad. So, so I'm, yeah, I'm excited to dig into some of the documents you mentioned. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it is, you're absolutely right. It's a tool in the toolkit, and it's a process um, for, that helps you deliver good outcomes. Any tool in any toolkit can be misused, can be used at the wrong time, things like that. Um, the company I work with now, I'm the chief operating officer, like I said, of Future Partners, our kind of tagline is, is beyond design thinking because we realize that design thinking is not a pan design thinking is not a panacea, um, but it's certainly a tool in the toolkit. And actually, we grew out of a true design firm. The, the co-founder, our co-founder is a designer, is and went to went to went to uh, Otis Design, you know, the design school. So true designer, doing you know, branding, marketing, things like that. And then we, we've evolved into a software and strategy firm. Um, 
and uh, you know an innovation software strategy firm that you know teaches a lot of stuff. So our tagline, Beyond Design Thinking, is an acknowledgement of that. In particular, our problem set focuses on a subset of of problems that are focused on trying to make a radical shift or pivot into a new software offering, a new product offering, a new service, a new strategy, a new policy, something radically different where existing corporate cultures, existing biases, cultural orthodoxies, those kinds of things are um, make it really, really hard to to change. You know, the, 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 in the terms that, you know, the Borg kind of can consume you and take all these good ideas and just crush them yeah. because for a variety of reasons. So, yeah. Tool in a toolkit, very helpful, not always applicable, um, and can be misused. But, you know, I, ultimately I think that it allows you to um, kind of facilitate the conditions in which people can see greater possibility, which they may not have been able to see prior to kind of, you know, coming into the room from like a, a, a structured perspective. Yeah, that's good. So um, I know you thought a lot about this, but, you know, you, you're someone who has experience both in the military and outside, and you're an entrepreneurial person. Uh, and obviously we talk sometimes about how we can cultivate that kind of entrepreneurial mindset or entrepreneurial mindset inside of the military or inside of the government. Um, and then as people sometimes exit the military, uh, entrepreneurial people that exit the military sometimes want to break away from all that structure, and so they go and work as a startup and there's this big chasm, obviously, uh, between uh, the startup mentality and the um, kind of the big uh, firm or the big uh, governmental mentality. How do you think we should bridge the gap uh, between creative, um, you know, ecosystems and uh, the government? I know you're already doing it with your your, um, your dinner series and all that. What are some other ideas you've had? So when you say bridge the gap, you mean tightening relationships between like the startup ecosystem, like you know, build better bridges, build like talk, collaborate, that kind of that kind of that. that yeah. Kind of like, way. what are some ways do you think maybe that we haven't done already, or that we are doing that aren't being acknowledged, to build better public-private partnerships, or to to have a wider on-ramp and off-ramp between federal service and private sector service, so, so that there's that whole innovation ecosystem there. Oh, I think a lot, a lot of thoughts on on-ramps, off-ramps, public-private partnerships. Um, first of all, I think that um, the ability, I think we, I do agree, I think it's really important to have on-ramps and off-ramps, on-ramps and off-ramps in between federal and the private um, for a variety of reasons. One, I think people get tired and burnt out in either space, and they want to go try new things. And I think by shutting down opportunities to come back into government, to come back into the military, things like that, you not only would people want to come back, but I think that people would come back jazzed, energized, and with new skills and methodologies that they would like to infuse into the DOD. So I think we miss, we, we miss out. Um, how we go about doing that, I think, um, I really honestly think that there's a lot of opportunity that is untapped even in like an unpaid space. I've always been a big believer that, and there's, there's existing programs, you know, there's different types of unpaid, unpaid employee internship partnership programs with the government that allow people to come back and serve in a minimal pay capacity. And I think we actually should grow a lot of those programs. Um, I really think that there is a cadre of people out there who, if you said, you know, who would be willing to give a week a, a year, two weeks a year to contribute in a, you know, pay my travel let me, you know, pay for a hotel, and I would gladly come help you work on your hardest problems, government. So we pay a lot of consultants, a lot of, you know, 
lot of money to do different things. But I actually think that there's a large body of people who would be willing to help the government for minimal compensation if there was a vehicle for them to do so. Um, yeah, I think that would be an interesting place to explore. Um, and like just there are programs existing that allow you to do that. I think we should grow those and scale those. That's one way from that perspective. I also think we need to make it easy just to talk. Um, it's very hard to bring people together to host conferences, to do different types of things um, that, are, that are sort of collaborative in nature because there's so many restrictions of, oh, you know, does this, this constitute a competitive advantage, this kind of thing. I think that we should make it easier to bring people together in dialogue just to share ideas. Um, and that's kind of why I started my, uh, my little dinner series just was because it's a simple way just among colleagues and friends to just chat and share. There's, you know, Chatham House rules, things like that. You know, no one's talking trade secrets, but just to talk sort of philosophies behind things. You don't have to, you don't have to share the, the crown jewels of your software or of your policy, but just to talk, you know, philosophically, hey, let's discuss how we think about approaching different challenges, particularly in my case in the AI space. So I think building opportunities that would allow people to give back to government in various ways, I think is really important. I think there's a group of people that would be willing to do so. I think you could do it without a whole lot of time and effort. You know, I'm not talking massive budget mobilizations here. I don't think, it's, I don't think that's, uh, that's feasible. I do think there's people that would be willing to contribute and help. And then increasing venues for dialogue. I think that's, that's really important. That's kind of where I would start. Um, make it simple, make it scalable. I think you have a much greater chance of success given you know, navigating the, uh, the myriad challenges of large bureaucracies. I think keeping it small and actionable is, is, a, is a great way to start. Yeah, and I actually come at it from kind of the other side. I think there's a lot of small, actionable stuff that's happening all across the country, and I would love to see uh, more decentralized um, ways that can network all of those nodes to each other intelligently. So, and I think that's kind of what you're trying to do with uh, with the intelligence community, right? Like, you know, kind of trying right. to like pull some of those together. Yeah, yeah, and I, what I'd really like to see is an opportunity where you know, the garage entrepreneur in Cincinnati can get, you know, connected to the uh, government requirement in Washington, D.C., you know, without having to fly out to an industry day um, and, you know, create conduits that, that are, uh, you know, have less uh, roadblocks. Yeah, I think, it's, I think it's a very valid way to go about it. I think I also think it's, it's – I think there's, there's, there's enough creative – contracting officers and other people out there, I think it's doable. I think the challenge come, and I think the opportunity is can you put the people together, <laughs> maybe a maybe a think wrong blitz or a design thinking session on this might be fun. Um, how might you, you know, how might you do that? Like take that scenario and map out 10 different ways you might be able to get that garage entrepreneur to doing a demo in the Pentagon courtyard. Maybe, maybe virtually, you know, maybe yeah. from from his or her garage. I don't know. It, right. I think it'd be a really fun exercise, and also I think yield practical value. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so next question is, what's uh, a great resource that you've been turning to lately? Um, it could be a podcast. It could be an event that you like to attend every year. It could be a book you've read. Um, it could be an app that you use, something that you like to tell people about uh, as a, something that they should know about. Yeah. I gave a couple quick ones. Um, one, I think uh, the uh, 
the AI dinner series that I put out is, is open to the public and people are welcome to, to, to join. Um, um, and they can, they can send an email to chris at restlesscreation.com to, for, for more information. Two, I put out a, uh, I put out a weekly newsletter called Six Bells, weekly-ish, um, which I do a wrap-up of naval and economic and defense stuff. I do a lot of tech as well find it interesting, and people seem to enjoy it. So I think it's a valuable resource. Three, a useful tool that I use a lot lately. I'm not a paid sponsor or spokesman, but I, I sound like it. I use a tool called Airtable to do a lot of databasing and tracking of things. It's also embeddable. So people like you who are tracking large amounts of information and, you know, and want to put it on websites and things like that, it's a super useful, intuitive tool. If you can use Google Sheets or Excel, it's, it's useful. And then uh, I think the Fourth one I, uh, is a newsletter I read um, called Exponential View, which takes a good a good broad survey across uh, across the uh, AI and futurism space, and it, it keeps me kind. Of, it's one way I, I read a lot of I read a lot of newsletters, a lot of publications, but that's one that I really enjoy, um, and uh, it's, it's curated across the tech and future space. And I, I read it; it's useful for me, keeps me in, in the loop, and uh, it's also got a dean also got a good sense of humor. That's cool. And um, what is uh, you've already done a couple, but what's a call to action if you wanted if, if someone listening to this uh, were to kind of turn off the, the screen for a minute and go do something? What's something you'd challenge them to do now? I think I would challenge them to um, actually reach out to a couple people smarter than them and say, hey, with one of their projects they're working on, and make them a little project plan and show those people their plan because I've been doing this much more recently. Having your own personal board of directors is a super helpful way to do it. People just don't often think about it. Companies have boards of directors, people, uh, you know, organizations have boards of directors. Why not have your own personal board of directors? Um, so, and it, by we, we get so wrapped up in the screen, as you mentioned, and other things that we, you know, we forget that other personal perspectives are, uh, are, uh, are very valuable and often yield dramatic uh, increases in performance, just, you know, simple ideas from another perspective. So take whatever you're working on. It could be a plan to apply for college, new business venture, or just an existing report and say, hey, would you mind putting a second or a third set of eyes on this? Or here's my plan to do this. You know, cost nothing, maybe a breakfast, a cup of coffee. And it's a super valuable tool that, uh, that is undervalued and underutilized is your, your friends and, your friends and, and colleagues. Yeah, that's really good. There's a leadership guru, you probably heard him, Jim Rohn. He says, you're the average of the five people you hang out with. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I always tell people, be more intentional about, you know, how they're spending their time and, and who's influencing them. 100%. Couldn't agree more. I tell my kids that, too. <laughs> <laughs> I so that's pretty much a uh, wrap-up. Do you have any final final things to share or thoughts? No, it was great. really enjoyed the chat. Okay, great, Chris. And I appreciate your time. And we'll share some links to, you know, things you've talked about in the, the show notes for the podcast. So I'm signing off. Awesome. Thanks. Take care.